Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting here from the glorious Hudson River Valley in the little village of Croton on Hudson, New York. Episode 12, Spindling and Socks. Hello. I am sitting here on a really mild, although not very sunny, day in Croton-on-Hudson. It's a little overcast. It actually feels like being at the beach in Southern California in August. You get these really nice overcast mornings where it's very cool, and then it starts to heat up right around the time that you head out to the beach, and that's that pretty much sums up my childhood. Um, but the, the summer this year in Croton has been ridiculously mild, and it's making me wonder if the gods are trying to tell me not to move to Arizona. I don't know. At this point, it's kind of past, past the point of no return. But there it is. Before I get into spindling and socks, I wanted to say thank you to Lauren and Amy. They both sent in some really helpful feedback. And I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate the feedback. Uh, you know, you're when you're podcasting, it's just you talking in a microphone at your computer screen, and it's a little weird and probably uh, way too self-centered for me to actually cope with. But I, Lauren's comments especially were about sound levels and, and volume, and it really hit home with me because the problems that she expressed having with the podcast are problems that I've had with other people's podcasts. And I'll, I'll tell you, I called my brother-in-law, who's actually an AV guy who does video stuff for a living, and he and I kind of fnumped around with uh, garage band and tried to figure out some things last night. So I'm trying new levels and I'm hoping that it will help. So if it does, let me know. And, you know, if it doesn't, let me know that too, because then I know I'm, I'm going to have to try something else. But, um, but the feedback is most appreciated. I, I certainly don't want to kind of put this out into the ethers and have y'all just sit there and go, well, it would be nice if I could hear anything. Because that, you know, who does that help? Then I'm just yammering at nothing and you guys don't get a book or, you know, any of the other stuff. Amy also sent in a, a really interesting idea that I am playing with. And I think next week I'll probably give it a test run. Um, I also wanted to let you know, I know Lauren said that she was having problems with iTunes. And of course, if I get one person saying iTunes is a problem, it means there's like 50 of you who aren't writing in who are annoyed with iTunes too. All I can tell you is that iTunes changed their category system. Why they needed to do this, I don't know. And they removed arts and entertainment and subdivided further. And I'm not entirely sure what this means for me. All I know is that it should have rolled me over into the new category, and I have a sneaking suspicion that it did it partially. Because after I got the comment from Lauren, I went and looked at iTunes and could only find the odd-numbered episodes. 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11. Which makes no sense. It's only supposed to keep, I think, the most current five episodes. So why it was going all the way back to one, you got me. So that's a little upsetting. Um, I'm not sure what's going on with that. I also need to figure out a way to archive my old episodes 
proper. And I'm going to figure out how to do that this week. Uh, I think what I'm going to wind up doing is going onto the craftlit site at blogspot.com and posting them as individual mp3 files. I just have to figure out how to do that. And once again, there are gardeners outside at my neighbor's house. I hope this isn't driving you crazy. It's driving me crazy, but maybe you guys can't hear it. It's, it's always hard to tell. And I just checked and you could hear the gardeners, so I just stopped for a while and now I'm back. Uh, <laughs> oh, leaf blowers, how I love them suburban village life. So I wanted to introduce you guys this week to a free online spinning magazine called Spindelicity. It is a online spinning magazine for hand spindlers. Now, If you've never tried using a spindle, I suggest you do so for a couple of different reasons. One, you look really cool doing it. <laughs> And number two, and I'm all for anything that makes me look cool. Um, and number two, the other thing that's really cool about it is it's, um, I, I personally think it's fascinating watching how wool, and if you get a very lightweight spindle, how cotton gets turned into yarn. I, I always had my favorite yarns and my favorite things to knit with or crochet with or even fabrics to uh, sew with. But what I learned uh, 18 years ago when I first started trying to spindle, and I, I tried doing it all by myself, and I was the only person I knew who did it, and I, I think I did a pretty lousy job of it in the beginning, um, the, the thing that I learned is that you really start paying attention to what goes into what you're doing. Kind of that whole, you know, the way of the peaceful knitter and mindful knitting and all those books that are coming out now, I found for me that there's an enormous difference between merino wool and say Lincoln wool. And I'm actually at the point now where when I go to the store and I'm kind of handling yarn at my local yarn store, I will say to the shop owner, do you know what kind of sheep this particular company buys? Because you know, if it's merino wool, they label it because everybody goes, ooh, it's merino. And there's a good reason for that. The micron count, the measurement, the diameter of the actual fiber is very fine. So that makes it very, very soft. And it has tiny, tiny, tiny little crimps, so it's not big and wavy. But then there's, there's other wool that, I don't know, it has a really nice feel to it, and it feels really light. And I'm wondering, well, geez, is this is this merino blended with something else? Is this Cormo? Is this, what is this? Is this Romney? I can't tell. And uh, very few places are labeling beyond the merino thing. Well, when you start spindling, you get to control how things feel. If you dye with, even with something simple like Kool-Aid, you can control the color, you can control the look, you can control the feel, you can control the weight. I find that I have a very difficult time doing lace weight spinning on a spinning wheel, but I can do lace weight spindling. And I'm making my sister right now that vest that I talked about a couple weeks ago. Oh, I should upload pictures of how that's coming out. I'm really, really happy with the way it's it's turning out. For one thing, I got a hold of some really good wool from Copper Moose. And, ooh, I need to put a link to Copper Moose <laughs> for you. Copper Moose. Can you hear me typing? Um, so it's it's just, it's nice to be able to do it yourself. I I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm a control freak, which is certainly possible. But the Spindelicity 
website. They host contests. They have articles. They have a really cute thing right now on kids who learn how to spin. There's a little kind of a self-done article by, I think she's seven, maybe, or maybe eight. She's little, little, oh no, she's in second grade. So she's what, eight, nine, eight. Um, adorable little girl who's learning how to spin. And you can see the stuff that she's been spinning. And it's just, you know, it, the, the spinning community says every first Friday of any month. So, ooh, that would be this Friday. Oh, perfect. This Friday is Spin in Public Day. Go out and spin in public. Grab a spindle. Grab a couple of CDs. Grab a rubber grommet. Tank them onto the top of a dowel and put a cup hook in it. It's a lousy way to make a spindle, but it works and it's super cheap. And there are instructions, oh, and I need to find these for you too, on how to make your own spindle online. And uh, I'll find that for you too, although I might not be able to find that today. Um, so Spindlicity, it's nice, it's free. It's kind of the spinning side of nitty.com or at least the spindling side of nitty.com. It's young, it's hip, it's cool, it's fresh. It looks really nice. It's well organized. Um, it's not quite as edgy as nitty.com can be, but they have great ideas and all of their patterns are for hand spun, which doesn't mean you can't use them for regular yarn that you buy. It just means, again, you get to be in control. So that's kind of fun. And I wanted to give you an update on my socks. Last week I told you about those little sock blockers. Well, I did receive them in the mail and they were in fact behind. It took, um, it took until, let's see. I got the sock blockers, I guess I got them Thursday or Friday, Friday, Saturday. I got them Saturday. I got them on Saturday. I started knitting Saturday night and by Saturday night, I had finished my first sock. It took about an hour and 15 minutes to make a sock for this little sock blocker. And my sneaking suspicion was correct. I think if anyone starts by making one of these socks, turning the heel was only four rows total. And anyone can handle a four row turned heel. Um, plus, if you're paying attention, you will start to see visually the construction of a sock. But just in case that's not good enough and you're still afraid of doing socks, I got a link to a really nice resource page that has really good uh, photographs of socks with all sorts of little schematic-y diagram thingies on it so that you can actually see, well, this is the gusset and this is the instep, which is never where I thought it was supposed to be. Somehow I thought the instep was supposed to be on the bottom of your foot, like where you step, and I got my language all confused. So knitting a sock used to be very difficult for me because I didn't understand the terminology. Well, this website, what this webpage does a really nice job of breaking down how the sock works. This is for a, a cuff down sock, not a toe up sock. And she also gives a little trick for how to get rid of those funky little ears that you get on the toe of your sock if you're knitting from the cuff to the toe, that you, you get down to your last you know, eight stitches or six stitches on the needles on, on um, like 12 stitches total. And you're supposed to Kitchener stitch all of those together. And don't fear the Kitchener stitch. I will link you to a Kitchener stitch page, not this week, but soon. I just have to find it again. Um, and then you get those funky little ears sticking off when you do the, the Kitchener stitch. And you can't see me doing the universal sign for funky little ears, but I'm, I'm doing it with my fingers right now. 
Uh, this woman on her webpage, she has a solution, and I haven't tested it yet, but it really looks promising. So I also wanted to thank you all for your forbearance last week with my soapbox on Gandhi. It, um, I got some really, really wonderful feedback, including feedback from someone who's actually been to or is near the uh, Gandhi Institute, which is just really exciting. I found out I'm actually going to get to have dinner with Arun Gandhi, who is Gandhi's grandson. He grew up in South Africa and India and um, was actually there. He, you know, has actual memories of his grandfather. So it was just, it was just nice to know that uh, at least those of you who wrote in that we all feel like something's missing and and that maybe we who are creative can be a positive force in the world that, that helps people start to think about other people and, and be mindful of what we do and what we say to other people. And um, maybe little by little we can get the world back to where we'd all like it to be. So thank you for, for your forbearance and your patience. And now, Pride and Prejudice. Holy cow. Darcy proposed. Dar Darcy proposed in a really ham-handed way that ticked Elizabeth off, and who can blame her? So now we're halfway through the book. The cat's out of the bag. He does, in fact, love her. And even though she comes from a really pathetic family, he is interested. And now, you know, all the way through the book so far, we've had our moments of pride and we've had our moments of prejudice, but now we really see that the entirety of the whole conflict is surrounding the fact that these are two incredibly prideful people who have their own prejudices. And we can really clearly see the problems that that creates. Well, this week, we we go further with the whole Darcy Elizabeth thing and they don't they don't have so much to do with each other today but we do learn more about what's going on with Darcy and Bingley and Bingley's moving away from Jane and we we kind of find out exactly how Darcy is tied up in all of that up until this point it looked like it was Miss Bingley who was really being the problem because she wanted um, Darcy for herself, and she wanted Darcy's sister to marry Mr. Bingley. But but now we're going to get into the real nitty-gritty of what was going on. And of course, the Bennet family, they don't help Elizabeth out any, nor do they help poor Jane out at all. But, um, but the other thing that's going to happen this week is we find out what's really going on with Wickham. And that is important because Wickham is not gone. Just because he's moved on and isn't going after Elizabeth anymore doesn't mean we've seen the last of him. And that's a problem, certainly in the future. So this week, really listen for Austin's uses of the words pride and prejudice, because even more than before this week, you're really going to hear, <laughs> you're really going to hear her use the words. They uh, show up again and again and again. And of course, there's poor, poor Charlotte still there with Mr. Collins. And I, I suppose that's, you know, that's good for her. Oh, there's also something else. Some of you may feel that um, Darcy, Darcy hands Elizabeth a letter. And some of you may feel that this is completely out of character for Darcy. I, I happen to be of the mind that 
Darcy rarely has come across anybody who he respects. And he respects Elizabeth. I, I have always had the sense that he could never have married someone who he didn't respect, which means he wouldn't have married Miss Bingley no matter how good a match she was for him because he thinks she's an idiot. Once he's kind of bitten by or not really shunned, but certainly refused by someone who he respects, I really do feel that it, it kind of lights a fire in his gut and he has to clear his own good name. And some people say, oh, this letter is such a contrived device. I don't know that I buy that. I've, I know that I have certainly felt like I have needed to explain myself to people who I respect when I think that they've misunderstood me. And I kind of get that sense with Darcy, that for him, this isn't lowering himself to, um, to a level that's below his station. I think in many ways he feels that all familial stuff aside, uh, Elizabeth is his equal, certainly intellectually. She's the only one who gives him a run for his money. So without further ado, today we have chapters 35 through 37 of Pride and Prejudice. Chapter 35 Elizabeth awoke the next morning to the same thoughts and meditations which had at length closed her eyes. She could not yet recover from the surprise of what had happened. It was impossible to think of anything else, and, totally indisposed for employment, she resolved soon after breakfast to indulge herself in air and exercise. She was proceeding directly to her favorite walk when the recollection of Mr. Darcy's sometimes coming there stopped her, and instead of entering the park, she turned up the lane, which led farther from the turnpike road. The park paling was still the boundary on one side, and she soon passed one of the gates into the ground. After walking two or three times along that part of the lane, she was tempted by the pleasantness of the morning, to stop at the gates and look into the park. The five weeks which she had now passed in Kent had made a great difference in the country, and every day was adding to the verdure of the early trees. She was on the point of continuing her walk when she caught a glimpse of a gentleman within the sort of grove which edged the park. He was moving that way, and, fearful of it being Mr. Darcy, she was directly retreating. But the person who advanced was now near enough to see her, and, stepping forward with eagerness, pronounced her name. She had turned away, but on hearing herself called, though in a voice which proved it to be Mr. Darcy, she moved again towards the gate. He had by that time reached it also, and, holding out a letter, which she instinctively took, said, with a look of haughty composure, I have been walking in the grove some time in the hope of meeting you. Will you do me the honor of reading that letter? And then, with a slight bow, turned again into the plantation, and was soon out of sight. With no expectation of pleasure, but with the strongest curiosity, Elizabeth opened the letter, and, to her still increasing wonder, perceived an envelope containing two sheets of letter paper written quite through in a very close hand. The envelope itself was likewise full. Pursuing her way along the lane, 
She then began it. It was dated from Rosings at eight o'clock in the morning, and was as follows: Be not alarmed, madam, on receiving this letter, by the apprehension of its containing any repetition of those sentiments or renewal of those offers which were last night so disgusting to you. I write without any intention of paining you or humbling myself by dwelling on wishes which. For the happiness of both, cannot be too soon forgotten, and the effort which the formation and the perusal of this letter must occasion should have been spared, had not my character required it to be written and read. You must, therefore, pardon the freedom with which I demand your attention. Your feelings, I know, will bestow it unwillingly, but I demand it of your justice. Two offences of a very different nature and by no means of equal magnitude, you last night laid to my charge. The first mentioned was that, regardless of the sentiments of either, I had detached Mr. Bingley from your sister, and the other, that I had, in defiance of various claims, in defiance of honour and humanity, ruined the immediate prosperity. And blasted the prospects of Mr. Wickham, willfully and wantonly to have thrown off the companion of my youth, the acknowledged favorite of my father, a young man who had scarcely any other dependence than on our patronage, and who had been brought up to expect its exertion would be a depravity to which the separation of two young persons, whose affection could be the growth of only a few weeks, could bear no comparison. But from the severity of that blame which was last night so liberally bestowed, respecting each circumstance, I shall hope to be in the future secured when the following account of my actions and their motives has been read. If in the explanation of them, which is due to myself, I am under the necessity of relating feelings which may be offensive to you, I can only say that I am sorry. The necessity must be obeyed. And further apology would be absurd. I had not long been in Hertfordshire before I saw, in common with others, that Bingley preferred your elder sister to any other young woman in the country. But it was not till the evening of the dance at Netherfield that I had any apprehension of his feeling a serious attachment. I had often seen him in love before. At that ball, while I had the honor of dancing with you, I was first made acquainted, by Sir William Lucas's accidental information, that Bingley's attentions to your sister had given rise to a general expectation of their marriage. He spoke of it as a certain event, of which the time alone could be undecided. From that moment, I observed my friend's behavior attentively, and I could then perceive. That his partiality for Miss Bennet was beyond what I had ever witnessed in him. Your sister, I also watched. Her look and manners were open, cheerful, and engaging as ever, but without any symptom of peculiar regard. And I remained convinced from the evening scrutiny that though she received his attentions with pleasure, she did not invite them by any participation of sentiment. If you have not been mistaken here, I must have been in error. If it be so, 
If I have been misled by such error to inflict pain on her, your resentment has not been unreasonable. But I shall not scruple to assert that the serenity of your sister's countenance and air was such as might have given the most acute observer a conviction that, however amiable her temper, her heart was not likely to be easily touched. That I was desirous of believing her indifferent is certain, but I will venture to say that my investigation and decisions are not usually influenced by my hopes or fears. I do not believe her to be indifferent because I wished it. I believed it on impartial conviction, as truly as I wished it in reason. My objections to the marriage were not merely those which I last night acknowledged to have the utmost force of passion to put aside, in my own case. The want of connection could not be so great an evil to my friend as to me. But there were other causes of repugnance, causes which, though still existing, and existing to an equal degree in both instances, I had myself endeavored to forget, because they were not immediately before me. These causes must be stated, though briefly. The situation of your mother's family, though objectionable, was nothing in comparison to that total want of propriety so frequently, so almost uniformly betrayed by herself, by your three younger sisters, and occasionally even by your father. Pardon me, it pains me to offend you. But amidst your concern for the defects of your nearest relations and your displeasure at this representation of them, let it give you consolation to consider that, to have conducted yourself so as to avoid any share of the like censure, is praise no less generally bestowed on you and your elder sister than it is honorable to the sense and disposition of both. I will only say farther that from what passed that evening my opinion of all parties was confirmed, and every inducement heightened which could have led me before to preserve my friend from what I esteemed a most unhappy connection. He left Netherfield for London on the day following, as you, I am certain, remember, with the design of soon returning. The part which I acted is now to be explained. His sister's uneasiness had been equally excited with my own. Our coincidence of feeling was soon discovered, and, alike sensible that no time was to be lost in detaching their brother, we shortly resolved on joining him directly in London. We accordingly went, and there I readily engaged in the office of pointing out to my friend the certain evils of such a choice. I described and enforced them earnestly. But, however this remonstrance might have staggered or delayed his determination, I do not suppose that it would ultimately have prevented the marriage, had it not been seconded by the assurance that I hesitated not in giving of your sister's indifference. He had before believed her to return his affection with sincere, if not with equal, regard. But Bingley has great natural modesty, with a stronger dependence on my judgment than on his own. To convince him, therefore, that he had deceived himself was no very difficult point. 
to persuade him against returning into Hertfordshire when that conviction had been given was scarcely the work of a moment. I cannot blame myself for having done thus much. There is but one part of my conduct in the whole affair on which I do not reflect with satisfaction. It is that I condescended to adopt the measures of art so far as to conceal from him your sister's being in town. I knew it myself, as it was known to Miss Bingley, but her brother is even yet ignorant of it. That they might have met without ill consequence is perhaps probable, but his regard did not appear to me enough extinguished for him to see her without some danger. Perhaps this concealment, this disguise, was beneath me. It is done, however, and it was done for the best. On this subject I have nothing more to say, no other apology to offer. If I have wounded your sister's feelings, it was unknowingly done, and though the motives which governed me may to you very naturally appear insufficient, I have not yet learnt to condemn them. With respect to that other, more weighty accusation of having injured Mr. Wickham, I can only refute it by laying before you the whole of his connection with my family. Of what he has particularly accused me, I am ignorant. But of the truth of what I shall relate, I can summon more than one witness of undoubted veracity. Mr. Wickham is the son of a very respectable man, who had for many years the management of all the Pemberley estates, and whose good conduct in the discharge of his trust naturally inclined my father to be of service to him. And on George Wickham, who was his godson, his kindness was therefore liberally bestowed. My father supported him at school, and afterwards at Cambridge, most important assistance, as his own father, always poor from the extravagance of his wife, would have been unable to give him a gentleman's education. My father was not only fond of this young man's society, whose manners were always engaging, he had also the highest opinion of him, and, hoping the church would be his profession, intended to provide for him in it. As for myself, it is many, many years since I first began to think of him in a very different manner. The vicious propensities, the want of principle which he was careful to guard from the knowledge of his best friend, could not escape the observation of a young man of nearly the same age with himself, and who had opportunities of seeing him in unguarded moments, which Mr. Darcy could not have. Here again shall give you pain, to what degree you only can tell. But whatever may be the sentiments which Mr. Wickham has created, a suspicion of their nature shall not prevent me from unfolding his real character. It adds even another motive. My excellent father died about five years ago, and his attachment to Mr. Wickham was to the last so steady that in his will he particularly recommended it to me to promote his advancement in the best manner that his profession might allow, and, if he took orders, desired that a valuable family living might be his as soon as it became vacant. 
there was also a legacy of one thousand pounds. His own father did not long survive mine, and within half a year from these events, Mr. Wickham wrote to inform me that, having finally resolved against taking orders, he hoped I should not think it unreasonable for him to expect some more immediate pecuniary advantage in lieu of the preferment by which he could not be benefited. He had some intention, he added, of studying law, and I must be aware that the interest of one thousand pounds will be a very insufficient support therein. I rather wished than believed him to be sincere, but at any rate was perfectly ready to accede to his proposal. I knew that Mr. Wickham ought not to be a clergyman. The business was therefore soon settled. He resigned all claim to assistance in the church, were it possible that he could ever be in a situation to receive it, and accepted in return three thousand pounds. All connection between us seemed now dissolved. I thought too ill of him to invite him to Pemberley, or admit his society in town. In town, I believe he chiefly lived, but his studying the law was a mere pretense, and being now free from all restraint, his life was a life of idleness and dissipation. For about three years I heard little of him, but on the decease of the incumbent of the living which had been designed for him, he applied to me again by letter for the presentation. His circumstances, he assured me, and I had no difficulty in believing it, were exceedingly bad. He had found the law a most unprofitable study, and was now absolutely resolved on being ordained, if I would present him to the living in question, of which he trusted there could be little doubt, as he was well assured that I had no other person to provide for, and I could not have forgotten my revered father's intentions. You will hardly blame me for refusing to comply with this entreaty, or for resisting every repetition to it. His resentment was in proportion to the distress of his circumstances, and he was doubtless as violent in his abuse of me to others as in his reproaches to myself. After this period, every appearance of acquaintance was dropped. How he lived, I know not, but last summer he was again most painfully obtruded on my notice. I must now mention a circumstance which I would wish to forget myself, and which no obligation less than the present should induce me to enfold to any human being. Having said thus much, I feel no doubt of your secrecy. My sister, who is more than ten years my junior, was left to the guardianship of my mother's nephew, Colonel Fitzwilliam, and myself. About a year ago she was taken from school, and an establishment formed for her in London, and last summer she went with the lady who presided over it to Ramsgate, and thither also went Mr. Wickham, undoubtedly by design for there proved to have been a prior acquaintance between him and Mrs. Young, in whose character we were most unhappily deceived, and, by her connivance and aid, 
he so far recommended himself to Georgiana, whose affectionate heart retained a strong impression of his kindness to her as a child, that she was persuaded to believe herself in love, and to consent to an elopement. She was then but fifteen, which must be her excuse, and after stating her imprudence, I am happy to add that I owed the knowledge of it to herself. I joined them unexpectedly a day or two before the intended elopement, and then Georgiana, unable to support the idea of grieving and offending a brother, whom she almost looked up to as a father, acknowledged the whole to me. You may imagine what I felt and how I acted. Regard for my sister's credit and feelings prevented any public exposure. But I wrote to Mr. Wickham, who left the place immediately, and Mrs. Young was of course removed from her charge. Mr. Wickham's chief object was unquestionably my sister's fortune, which is thirty thousand pounds, but I cannot help supposing that the hope of revenging himself on me was a strong inducement. His revenge would have been complete indeed. This, madam, is a faithful narrative of every event in which we have been concerned together, and if you do not absolutely reject it as false, you will, I hope, acquit me henceforth of cruelty towards Mr. Wickham. I know not in what manner, under what form of falsehood, he had imposed on you, but his success is not perhaps to be wondered at. Ignorant as you previously were of everything concerning either, detection could not be in your power, and suspicion certainly not in your inclination. You may possibly wonder why all this was not told you last night, but I was not then master enough of myself to know what could or ought to be revealed. For the truth of everything here related, I can appeal more particularly to the testimony of Colonel Fitzwilliam, who, from our near relationship and constant intimacy, and still more, as one of the executors of my father's will, has been unavoidably acquainted with every particular of these transactions. If your abhorrence of me should make my assertions valueless, you cannot be prevented by the same cause from confiding in my cousin, and that there may be the possibility of consulting him, I shall endeavor to find some opportunity of putting this letter in your hands in the course of the morning. I will only add, God bless you. Fitzwilliam Darcy End of chapter 35 Chapter 36 If Elizabeth, when Mr. Darcy gave her the letter, did not expect it to contain a renewal of his offers, she had formed no expectation at all of its contents. But such as they were, it may well be supposed how eagerly she went through them, and what a contrariety of emotion they excited. Her feelings as she read were scarcely to be defined. With amazement did she first understand that he believed any apology to be in his power, and steadfastly was she persuaded that he could have no explanation to give which a just sense of shame would not conceal.
With a strong prejudice against everything he might say, she began his account of what had happened at Netherfield. She read with an eagerness which hardly left her power of comprehension, and from impatience of knowing what the next sentence might bring, was incapable of attending to the sense of the one before her eyes. His belief of her sister's insensibility she instantly resolved to be false, and his account of the real, the worse objections to the match, made her too angry to have any wish of doing him justice. He expressed no regret for what he had done, which satisfied her. His style was not penitent, but haughty. It was all pride and insolence. But when this subject was succeeded by his account of Mr. Wickham, when she read with somewhat clearer attention a relation of events which, if true, must overthrow every cherished opinion of his worth, and which bore so alarming an affinity to his own history of himself, her feelings were yet more acutely painful and more difficult of definition. Astonishment, apprehension, and even horror oppressed her. She wished to discredit it entirely, repeatedly exclaiming, This must be false! This cannot be! This must be the grossest falsehood! And when she had gone through the whole letter, though scarcely knowing anything of the last page or two, put it hastily away, protesting that she would not regard it, that she would never look in it again. In this perturbed state of mind, with thoughts that could rest on nothing, she walked on, but it would not do. In half a minute the letter was unfolded again, and collecting herself as well as she could, she again began the mortifying perusal of all that related to Wickham, and commanded herself so far as to examine the meaning of every sentence. The account of his connection with the Pemberley family was exactly what he had related himself, and the kindness of the late Mr. Darcy, though she had not before known its extent, agreed equally well with his own words. So far, each recital confirmed the other, but when she came to the will, the difference was great. What Wickham had said of the living was fresh in her memory, and as she recalled his very words, it was impossible not to feel that there was gross duplicity on one side or the other, and for a few moments she flattered herself that her wishes did not err. But when she read and re-read with the closest attention the particulars immediately following of Wickham's resigning all pretensions to the living, of his receiving in lieu so considerable a sum as three thousand pounds, again she was forced to hesitate. She put down the letter, weighed every circumstance with what she meant to be impartiality, deliberated on the probability of each statement, but with little success. On both sides it was only assertion. Again she read on, but every line proved more clearly that the affair, which she had believed it impossible that any contrivance could so represent as to render Mr. Darcy's conduct in it less than infamous, was capable of a turn which must make him entirely blameless throughout the whole. 
the extravagance and general profligacy which he scrupled not to lay at Mr. Wickham's charge exceedingly shocked her, the more so as she could bring no proof of its injustice. She had never heard of him before his entrance into the blank shire militia, on which he had engaged at the persuasion of the young man who, on meeting him accidentally in town, had there renewed a slight acquaintance. Of his former way of life, nothing had been known in Hertfordshire but what he told himself. As to his real character, had information been in her power, she had never felt a wish of inquiring. His countenance, voice, and manner had established him at once in the possession of every virtue. She tried to recollect some instance of goodness, some distinguished trait of integrity or benevolence that might rescue him from the attacks of Mr. Darcy, or at least, by the predominance of virtue, atone for those casual errors under which she would endeavor to class what Mr. Darcy had described as the idleness and vice of many years' continuance. But no such recollection befriended her. She could see him instantly before her, in every charm of air and address, but she could remember no more substantial good than the general approbation of the neighborhood, and the regard which his social powers had gained him in the mess. After pausing on this point a considerable while, she once more continued to read. But, alas, the story which followed of his designs on Miss Darcy received some confirmation from what had passed between Colonel Fitzwilliam and herself only the morning before. And at last she was referred for the truth of every particular to Colonel Fitzwilliam himself from whom she had previously received the information of his near concern in all his cousin's affairs, and whose character she had no reason to question. At one time she had almost resolved on applying to him, but the idea was checked by the awkwardness of the application, and at length wholly banished by the conviction that Mr. Darcy would never have hazarded such a proposal if he had not been well assured of his cousin's corroboration. She perfectly remembered everything that had passed in conversation between Wickham and herself in their first evening at Mr. Phillips. Many of his expressions were still fresh in her memory. She was now struck with the impropriety of such communications to a stranger, and wondered it had escaped her before. She saw the indelicacy of putting himself forward as he had done, and the inconsistency of his professions with his conduct. She remembered that he had boasted of having no fear of seeing Mr. Darcy, that Mr. Darcy might leave the country, but that he should stand his ground. Yet he had avoided the Netherfield Ball the very next week. She remembered also that, till the Netherfield family had quitted the country, he had told his story to no one but herself, but that after their removal it had been everywhere discussed, that he had then no reserves, no scruples in sinking Mr. Darcy's character, though he had assured her that respect for the father would always prevent his exposing the son. 
How differently did everything now appear in which he was concerned? His attentions to Miss King were now the consequence of views solely and hatefully mercenary, and the mediocrity of her fortune proved no longer the moderation of his wishes, but his eagerness to grasp at anything. His behavior to herself could now have had no tolerable motive. He had either been deceived with regard to her fortune, or had been gratifying his vanity by encouraging the preference which she believed she had most incautiously shown. Every lingering struggle in his favor grew fainter and fainter, and in farther justification of Mr. Darcy, she could not but allow Mr. Bingley, when questioned by Jane, had long ago asserted his blamelessness in the affair. That proud and repulsive as were his manners, she had never, in the whole course of their acquaintance, an acquaintance which had latterly brought them much together and given her a sort of intimacy with his ways, seen anything that betrayed him to be unprincipled or unjust, anything that spoke him of irreligious or immoral habits, that among his own connections he was esteemed and valued, that even Wickham had allowed him merit as a brother, and that she had often heard him speak so affectionately of his sister as to prove him capable of some amiable feeling, that, had his actions been what Mr. Wickham represented them, so gross a violation of everything right could hardly have been concealed from the world, and that friendship between a person capable of it and such an amiable man as Mr. Bingley was incomprehensible. She grew absolutely ashamed of herself. Of neither Darcy nor Wickham could she think without feeling she had been blind, partial, prejudiced, absurd. "'How despicably I have acted!' she cried. "'I, who have prided myself on my discernment. "'I, who have valued myself on my abilities. "'Who had often disdained the generous candor of my sister.' and gratified my vanity in useless or blamable mistrust. How humiliating is this discovery! Yet how just a humiliation! Had I been in love, I could not have been more wretchedly blind. But vanity, not love, has been my folly. Pleased with the preference of one, and offended by the neglect of the other on the very beginning of our acquaintance, I have courted prepossession and ignorance, and driven away where either were concerned. Till this moment I never knew myself. From herself to Jane, from Jane to Bingley, her thoughts were in a line which soon brought her to her recollection that Mr. Darcy's explanation there had appeared very insufficient, and she read it again. Widely different was the effect of a second perusal. How could she deny that credit to his assertions in one instance, which she had been obliged to give in the other? He declared himself to be totally unsuspicious of her sister's attachment, and she could not help remembering what Charlotte's opinion had always been. Neither could she deny the justice of his description of Jane. She felt that Jane's feelings, though fervent, were little displayed, and that there was a constant complacency in her air and manner 
not often united with great sensibility. When she came to that part of the letter in which her family were mentioned in terms of such mortifying yet merited reproach, her sense of shame was severe. The justice of the charge struck her too forcibly for denial, and the circumstances to which he particularly alluded as having passed at the Netherfield Ball, and as confirming all his first disapprobation, could not have made a stronger impression on his mind than on hers. The compliment to herself and her sister was not unfelt. It soothed, but it could not console her for the contempt which had thus been self-attracted by the rest of her family, and as she considered that Jane's disappointment had in fact been the work of her nearest relations, and reflected how materially the credit of both must be hurt by such impropriety of conduct, she felt depressed beyond anything she had ever known before. After wandering along the lane for two hours, giving way to every variety of thought, reconsidering events, determining probabilities, and reconciling herself, as well as she could, to a change so sudden and so important, fatigue and recollection of her long absence made her at length return home, and she entered the house with the wish of appearing cheerful as usual, and the resolution of repressing such reflections as must make her unfit to conversation. She was immediately told that the two gentlemen from Rosings had each called during her absence, Mr. Darcy only for a few minutes to take leave, but that Colonel Fitzwilliam had been sitting with them at least an hour, hoping for her return, and almost resolving to walk after her till she could be found. Elizabeth could but just affect concern in missing him. She really rejoiced at it. Colonel Fitzwilliam was no longer an object. She could think only of her letter. End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 The two gentlemen left Rosings the next morning, and Mr. Collins, having been in waiting near the lodges to make them his parting obeisance, was able to bring home the pleasing intelligence of their appearing in very good health, and in as tolerable spirits as could be expected, after the melancholy scene so lately gone through at Rosings. To Rosings he then hastened to console Lady Catherine and her daughter, and on his return brought back, with great satisfaction, a message from her ladyship, importing that she felt herself so dull as to make her very desirous of having them all to dine with her. Elizabeth could not see Lady Catherine without recollecting that, had she chosen it, she might by this time have been presented to her as her future niece, nor could she think, without a smile, of what her ladyship's indignation would have been. What would she have said? How would she have behaved? were questions with which she amused herself. Their first subject was the diminution of the Rosings party. I assure you I feel it exceedingly, said Lady Catherine. I believe no one feels the loss of friends so much as I do, but I am particularly attached to these young men, and know them to be so much attached to me. They were excessively sorry to go. 
But so they always are. The dear colonel rallied his spirits tolerably, till just at last. But Darcy seemed to feel it most acutely, more, I think, than last year. His attachment to Rosings certainly increases. Mr. Collins had a compliment and an allusion to throw in here, which were kindly smiled on by the mother and daughter. Lady Catherine observed after dinner that Miss Bennet seemed out of spirits, and immediately accounting for it by herself, by supposing that she did not like to go home again so soon, she added, "But if that is the case, you must write to your mother and beg that you may stay a little longer. Mrs. Collins will be very glad of your company, I am sure." I am much obliged to your ladyship for your kind invitation," replied Elizabeth. "But it is not in my power to accept it. I must be in town next Saturday. Why, at that rate, you will have been here only six weeks. I expected you to stay two months. I told Mrs. Collins so before you came. There can be no occasion for your going so soon. Mrs. Bennet could certainly spare you for another fortnight." But my father cannot. He wrote last week to hurry my return. Oh, your father, of course, may spare you, if your mother can. Daughters are never of so much consequence to a father, and if you will stay another month complete, it will be in my power to take one of you as far as London, for I am going there early in June for a week. And as Dawson does not object to the barouche box, there will be very good room for one of you. And indeed, if the weather should happen to be cool, I should not object to taking you both, as you are neither of you large. You are all kindness, madam, but I believe we must abide by our original plan. Lady Catherine seemed resigned. Mrs. Collins, you must send a servant with them. You know I always speak my mind, and I cannot bear the idea of two young women travelling post by themselves. It is highly improper. You must contrive to send somebody. I have the greatest dislike in the world to that sort of thing. Young women should always be properly guarded and attended, according to their situation in life. When my niece Georgiana went to Ramsgate last summer, I made a point of her having two men servants go with her. Miss Darcy, the daughter of Mr. Darcy of Pemberley, and Lady Anne could not have appeared with propriety in a different manner. I am excessively attentive to all those things. You must send John with the young ladies, Mrs. Collins. I am glad it occurred to me to mention it, for it would really be discreditable to you to let them go alone. My uncle is to send a servant for us. Oh, your uncle! He keeps a manservant, does he? I am very glad you have somebody who thinks of these things. Where shall you change horses? Oh, Bromley, of course. If you mention my name at the bell, you will be attended to. Lady Catherine had many other questions to ask respecting their journey, and as she did not answer them all herself, attention was necessary, which Elizabeth believed to be lucky for her, or with a mind so occupied she might have forgotten where she was. Reflection must be reserved for solitary hours. Whenever she was alone, she gave way to it as the greatest relief. And not a day went by without a solitary walk, in which she might indulge in all the delight of unpleasant recollections. Mister Darcy's letter she was in a fair way of soon knowing by heart. She studied every sentence 
and her feelings towards its writer were at times wildly different. When she remembered the style of his address, she was still full of indignation. But when she considered how unjustly she had condemned and upbraided him, her anger was turned against herself, and his disappointed feelings became the object of compassion. His attachment excited gratitude, his general character respect, but she could not approve him, nor could she for a moment repent her refusal or feel the slightest inclination ever to see him again. In her own past behavior, there is a constant source of vexation and regret, and in the unhappy defects of her family, a subject of yet heavier chagrin. They were hopeless of remedy. Her father, contented with laughing at them, would never exert himself to restrain the wild giddiness of his youngest daughters, and her mother, with manners so far from right herself, was entirely insensible of the evil. Elizabeth had frequently united with Jane in an endeavor to check the imprudence of Catherine and Lydia, but while they were supported by their mother's indulgence, what chance could there be of improvement? Catherine, weak-spirited, irritable, and completely under Lydia's guidance, had been always affronted by their advice, and Lydia, self-willed and careless, would scarcely give them a hearing. They were ignorant, idle, and vain. While there was an officer in Meryton, they would flirt with him, and while Meryton was within a walk of Longbourn, they would be going there forever. Anxiety on Jane's behalf was another prevailing concern, and Mr. Darcy's explanation, by restoring Bingley to all her former good opinion, heightened the sense of what Jane had lost. His affection was proved to have been sincere, and his conduct cleared of all blame, unless any could attach to the implicitness of his confidence in his friend. How grievous, then, was the thought that, of a situation so desirable in every respect, so replete with advantage, so promising for happiness, Jane had been deprived by the folly and indecorum of her own family. When to these recollections was added the development of Wickham's character, it may be easily believed that the happy spirits which had seldom been depressed before were now so much affected as to make it almost impossible for her to appear tolerably cheerful. Their engagements at Rosings were as frequent during the last week of her stay as they had been at first. The very last evening was spent there, and her ladyship again inquired minutely into the particulars of their journey, gave them directions as to the best method of packing, and was so urgent on the necessity of placing gowns in the only right way that Maria thought herself obliged, on her return, to undo all the work of the morning and pack her trunk afresh. When they parted, Lady Catherine, with great condescension, wished them a good journey, and invited them to come to Hunsford again next year, and Miss de Bourg exerted herself so far as to curtsy, and hold out her hand to both. End of chapter 37 Thank you for listening to episodes 35 through 37, next week episodes 38 through 41. And I apologize for the um, popping and bumping that you heard in the um, today's episodes. I know that happens from time to time. I can only assume that Annie Coleman is using a handheld mic, 
and um, and that's one of the risks that you run when you have a mic like that. So I'm sorry about that. There, that's one of the things that you just can't fix no matter what you do. Uh, if it recorded that way, it's kind of stuck that way. So thank you for your patience, and we'll see you next week. As always, I'd like to thank Annie Coleman for her reading of the book, and thank you to Josh Christian, who did Chasing Hero. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.